So three Christmas surprises. Hey, this is Joel Allen, the host of Biblical Conversations, honest conversation about difficult aspects of the Bible. In this podcast episode, we are going to be looking at three surprises for the Christmas season. As you may know, the Christmas season extends 12 days after Christmas, so I have a little bit more time to fit Christmas topics into the podcast. And so I preached a sermon the other day uh, here um, here in South Dakota in the Chamberlain area, and it was a real fun sermon. I enjoyed putting it together. It was called Three Christmas Surprises, and the people there really seemed to enjoy it. And so I'm going to share that episode in this uh in the share that information in this episode. I do want to just say to you that I'm interested in making a bit of a change in what uh, I do with this podcast. I'm thinking of seeing that we've really looked at a lot of topics where there's conversations going on in the Bible. I have hordes more of those I could do, but uh, I want to look at maybe taking a shift toward looking at social issues and kind of ethical questions through the lens of biblical material. In other words, uh, taking topics in biblical ethics. So we could take maybe women in leadership positions, maybe abortion, uh, maybe uh, wealth tax, uh, different topics that are of interest uh, from a perspective of ethics and culture and, uh, and social uh, social justice, and we can take a look at different issues like that. And uh, it'd be fun to do topically too, uh, conversationally too, so that, uh, you know, maybe Carl uh, Kroger or Jeff Pospisil and there, or anyone else that's interested in being a part of that conversation, uh, these would be fun to have conversations about as well. And so the last few days I've been thinking, you know, every now and then I'll like, oh, that would be a great topic to do. And so I need to start another uh, another list so I can uh, create a running list. I think I had 35 topics where there are conversations in the Bible. And so this is... Uh, so I guess I'll be starting another list like that. So maybe what I could do later, uh, jump back in and kind of do another uh, biblical conversation as I've been doing them. And um, so anyway, I'm going to move on now and start this uh, uh, going through this material, uh, kind of preaching a little sermon to you on uh, three Christmas surprises. And this is based on the biblical text of the shepherds watching their field at night and the angel of the Lord appearing to them. So I'm going to do something in this sermon that I've never done before. Actually, kind of two things. One is that this sermon came out of a conversation my wife and I had recently as we were having our devotions together. We were uh, talking about uh, the Christmas story and how it related to what we were thinking about in our devotions. And we started to kind of put this sermon schema together. And it's something I've never done before. I've never actually planned a sermon kind of along with my wife. So it's a dual sermon that we put together uh, as a couple. But also it's a special sermon for me in that it's, uh, it's based on some kind of interesting perspectives of things that people may not know about the Bible. And of course, uh, you may know that I do trips to Israel. And when you do that, you kind of learn a lot, a little bit of minutia, background information. And also I'm a biblical scholar. And so I go to academic meetings and sometimes every now and then you'll hear a paper that's just really interesting and gives you some kind of new perspective on the Bible. And so that's, uh, that's, so, so what this sermon is going to be called is Betcha Didn't Know, Three Special Sermons, uh, Christmas Surprises. And so these are three things about the story 
uh, in Luke chapter 2 of the shepherds in the field. And so I'm going to read that story first, and then uh, we'll look at three surprises about it. There were shepherds in the same country staying in the field and keeping watch over their flock at night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were terrified. The angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born to you in this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a feeding trough. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heaven, a multitude of the heavenly army praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It happened when the angels went away from them into the sky that the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem now and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, uh, and the baby was lying in a feeding trough. And when they saw it, they publicized widely the saying which was spoken to them about this child. All who heard it wondered at these things which had been spoken to them by the shepherds. So the first thing about this text that is a bit surprising is that there's, it's very likely that these shepherds were much younger than we may think. They were probably teenagers. I was at an academic meeting uh, just a few months ago, actually, and heard a paper read on this topic. Uh, this person was uh, a sociologist that had done a lot of work and uh, looking at the um, information that we have from the ancient world about shepherds and what kind of job it was and the perceptions that people had about shepherds. And, and, and it was definitely a matter of shepherds being younger than we think. Shepherds are probably teenagers. And even if you think about the story of King David uh, when he was a child, before he was King David, when he was a child and uh, son of Jesse and taking care of the sheep, and he talks about you know killing the, sh- the lion, and I think it mentions a bear. <clears throat> and But he's clearly a teenager when he's taking care of the sheep. And that was something that was kind of typical in the ancient world. Shepherds were much younger than we typically think. They were teenagers, and the work of shepherding was done by teenagers. And it's kind of interesting if you think about this passage uh, in that light. It kind of brings a new... Uh, a new vividness to it because they're, uh, these, these shepherds are, you know, the angel of the Lord appears to them and the glory of the Lord's shining around them and they receive this, be- this wonderful message, you know, unto you that's born in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. <clears throat> and, you know, they could have responded to that in different ways. They could have, you know, if they were you know, boomers like me, they could have said, well, you know, we're responsible and we're can't leave the sheep, so uh, maybe we should have a prayer meeting for this uh, Savior that's born, or maybe we can have a fundraiser to help the baby with, uh, help the mother and this young family through this time in their lives, or something like that. But they, but what they did was what teenagers would do. They're like, hey, let's go. Let's check it out. And so they jumped up and ran into, into Bethlehem and, and uh, were there to welcome the newborn king. If, if they had been, you know, boomers like me, they probably would never even appear in the Christmas story because they wouldn't have jumped up and run to the manger. But, uh, but they, they did that. They jumped up and responded immediately. And it's interesting, the angel never told them to do it. The angel never says, now go 
into Bethlehem and, you know, the angel never gives them instructions. They come up with that idea. They say, let us go to find out, the, to investigate this thing that's been announced to us. So, uh, the, the, and it's kind of interesting if you think about teenagers, just the way teenagers are more open to life-changing experiences. They experience life differently than people who are, you know, in their 40s and 50s because their lives are malleable and they're open to uh, kind of radical newness in their life. And um, I heard a while back that, you know, we, we, we basically develop our tastes for things when we're a teenager or even a little bit younger. For instance, if you give a child coffee or beer or salsa, those kinds of things, almost always they don't like it because, you know, coffee's bitter. Beer is kind of bitter. Um, salsa burns, you know, if it's hot at all. And uh, those are unpleasant. But why do adults like them? Well, somewhere in those teenage years, they, they keep hearing about how good it is and they try it again and try it again. And after a while, they go, man, this tastes pretty good. Uh, I, it's interesting. I grew up in South Texas. And so I love hot stuff. I, I mean, I pour hot stuff on my food. And uh, I, when I was giving the sermon out as a little country church in, uh, in near Chamberlain, South Dakota. And I, I uh, said, how many of you like salsa? Not, I, I don't think a hand went up in the room because they're Midwesterners, you know. And so when they're teenagers, they're not tasting those things. But I grew up around those flavors and really developed a, a palate for them. And so, um, so teenagers, are the teenage years are the years where your tastes are being set. I heard a while back that if you don't decide you like sushi by the time you're like 25, you'll never like it because it's a flavor and it's a texture that a lot of people, once their, their palate has set, you just can't change that. And so, uh, so, and I think it's kind of funny right now in our culture is a lot of, you know, okay boomer stuff out there, these memes out there, okay boomer. And so there's, you know, kind of a little bit of tension between the the generations where, you know, the teenagers are kind of poking fun at the stodgy old fashionedness or technologically unsavviness, the uh, fact that we don't know how to use social media very well. I still don't know how to use Twitter. I mean, I use it a little bit, but I just can't figure Twitter out. <laughs> it's just ridiculous to me. And, and then Instagram. I can't figure Instagram out either. I mean, I use them and I can post things, but I'm not like you know, you know, figure things out easily. But uh, my kids just grab it and, you know, they, they know exactly what to do. I don't know how many times, uh, even for this podcast, I'll say to my daughter, now, how do I do that again? And she can grab my phone or my uh, iPad and figure it out right away. And so kids are curious. Kids are having life-changing experiences. And here these uh, shepherds were able to just jump up and they didn't do what a boomer would do and say, okay, well, we can't leave the sheep, so don't go anywhere. They didn't do that. They left the sheep there and they went uh, running down the hill into Bethlehem. And so, uh, and so it's surprising that, um, that, that God used these shepherds in such a way. And so what's the lesson here? And I'm not even very sure. You might come up with a much better lesson than I can think of. But all I can think of here is that maybe the lesson is that we could learn to be more curious about our world and more curious about what God is up to. When was the last time you dropped everything to follow God's call? When was the last time God stirred in your heart to 
go on a mission trip or to do something you've never crossed the street to bring, uh, to bring a message of hope to a neighbor. Um, that God may be calling you to do things that uh, might seem a little bit uh, irrational or irresponsible at this moment. And maybe we all need to have a little bit more of the heart of a teenager. But so there's the first bet you didn't know. Bet you didn't know that the shepherds were much younger than we think of them. So the next surprise in the biblical story is uh, that Bethlehem was very close to a massive Roman fortress palace complex called Herodian. In fact, it's the only one of Herod's 35 palaces that's named after Herod himself. He called it Herodian. No big surprise there. It's named after himself. And uh, it's by far his most impressive, or maybe not by far, because Masada was an amazing uh, fortress palace complex. Um, but the Herodian was, was perhaps built in a more splendid way than any other. He actually, Herod actually cut down a hill right next to, to the hill that he built his palace on, Herodian on. He actually cut it down, and by that I mean he had slave labor, cut it down, put it in a basket and pull it up on, and, and bring it up bit by bit. And so he could build up the palace hill to a magnificent size so it could be seen in the whole uh, surrounding region. And so, so from Bethlehem, it's very likely that you could have looked down the way there and seen this massive fortress of Herodian. And so it had two sections. It had an upper section, which was kind of a circular, like a three or four story wall. And in fact, tragically, the great archaeologist that uh, that did the study here was named Ehud Netzer, and the the he had dug down so far down into uh, digging out these walls that he was up at the top once and uh, was I think giving a tour, and he fell and uh, fell to his death. I think that was 2008. Very tragically, he was a, a marvelous human being and uh, very well beloved by the whole uh, academic community, the archeological community in Israel. And so Ehud Netzer was the great archeologist of the uh, Herodian and the discoverer of Herod's, uh, Herod's tomb. Scholars for years knew that the tomb had to be at Herodian because of some things Josephus said, who was a historian of that time period. <clears throat> but they couldn't find it. It wasn't at the upper part. There was just no real way that place it could be located up in the upper part. And then there was another whole lower palace complex with a huge, beautiful pool and, and bathing area. It was just an amazing, amazingly beautiful palace. You can actually get online and look at... Um, and images of it. Uh, when you go to the visitor center there, they, they've got a whole like brass uh, miniaturized version that you can really take a close look at. So there's an upper palace and a lower palace and he knew it wasn't in Netzer, Yetzer, Ehud Netzer, knew it wasn't either of those two. And so he was looking and looking. Finally, I think in 2006, uh, he discovered the tomb of Herod, and it was like in an in-between section between the upper and lower parts. And uh, I read an article in Biblical Archaeological Review about it a number of years back, and 
And as I recall, the reason why it was so hard to find the tomb was that the anger at Herod was so severe that after he died and was buried at that tomb, the tomb was just torn to bits by the Jewish people. So right next to Bethlehem is this magnificent palace built to the glory of King Herod. Out of all the palaces around there, this was the most glorious. And as I said, also the place of his, um, of his burial. So very interesting, just the contrast of here, Christ being born in a manger and a shepherd's in a little inn uh, or an upper room or room, guest room, really uh, uh, the word that's used there for the inn as translated in, it just means like a guest room. Um, and so it, it probably would have been like the upper room of a house, I think, if I'm recalling that correctly. But the point here is that uh, Bethlehem was nothing if not humble. It was the whole biblical story emphasizes the humility of Christ's birth, the lack of any royal accoutrements, uh, except for the three wise men who aren't mentioned in Luke, only in Matthew, as having come from the east to pay him homage. But uh, other than that, it's just shepherds and this little manger, a feeding trough, where Jesus is laid and right down the road and right around this time, right around the time that Jesus is born is when Herod dies. And so, so, uh, so the whole tomb and the, the, the uh, burial of Herod would have had it happen soon after this story occurs. So what's the lesson there? Again, I'm not sure other than to point out the striking difference in style and tone. Herod did everything humanly possible to protect his power and ensure his glorious memory. And none of it worked. Uh, his tomb couldn't even be discovered after he died because it was, he was so vilified, it was torn apart. A true lesson of the dangers of human pride and deceit and self-glorification. And yet the tomb of Jesus, which he only needed for a few days, but uh, has, uh, has been honored by millions and millions of people every year. Uh, the tomb of the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the real tomb of Jesus, not the uh, garden tomb. That's almost certainly not the actual tomb, but it's fun to visit just to kind of see what it may have looked like. Um, but the tomb, the, tomb of the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is almost certainly where Jesus, the place of Jesus' burial. And just the striking contrast here, uh, we're called to be followers of the Christ who was born in a manger and was buried in a borrowed tomb and who had uh, no place, as he said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And that's our, that's humility, that's humble service for us kingly service is self-giving love, is self-sacrifice. And this exemplifies just the shocking difference between human methods of exacting power and authority and forcing others to do one's will, as opposed to giving your life to benefit others and to be uh, the one who is Lord of all, although also servant of all.
I was just doing a little uh, looking around as I was thinking about Herodian. I uh, was going to comment that um, that I would suggest you get on Google, do, do, say Google uh, image search and look up Herodian just because it's an interesting site and you can see pictures of it and uh, of the upper city and the lower or the upper temple and not temple, it's a palace and the lower palace. But as I was looking around, I came across an article uh, that is that talks about a ring of the Roman governor, Pont- governor Pontius Pilate, the famous Pontius Pilate who crucified Jesus, uh, was found in Herodian. Uh, it actually was found about 50 years ago, right after the Six Day War in 67, I think. Uh, they were working to open up this site to visitors, and they went in and had uh, an archaeologist go in, Gideon Forster is his name, and he found a whole bunch of rings uh, laying in the in the dirt and pulled them out. And so there are a whole bunch of them, and they just recently have gotten around to photographing them with these new uh, cameras that allow them to, uh, to, after they clean them well, they allow them to... Um, to read the inscriptions and understand them. And so just recently in the last year or two, they, they realized that one of these rings said Pilatus on it. So after Herod died, this uh, palace would have continued to be an administrative center in, for the region for quite some time. So all the things that Herod built, including Masada, but all of the places, the palaces that Herod built and fortresses that he built were used as places of Roman administration or Herodian administration uh, for some time after that. Actually, Roman, because this region would have uh, eventually come under, under the direct control of Roman uh, prefects uh, and Herod being, I guess, the fifth of them. So uh, very interesting that they found a, uh, so Pilate was likely himself <laughs> at the Herodian. No real surprise there. But uh, just an interesting connection that makes this connection between uh, between the Herodian and um, and Bethlehem all the more an interesting one. And the last thing that I'd like to talk about briefly with you is the simple fact that, and many of you may know this already, but the simple fact that the Bible never mentions the angels had wings or halos. It's really interesting when you think about a, commu- a, a nativity uh, uh, set that we put up at our houses in Christmas. The angels always have wings and usually have halos. And yet the Bible never depicts angels ha- as having wings or halos. And that may be associated with the halo is probably connected to places where the Bible talks the glory of the Lord shining around about them as it does in Luke chapter 2 when the she- angels appeared to the shepherds. Uh, and yet um, the Bible never says, so halos may represent that glory of the Lord shining about them, but the Bible never mentions wings. The closest the Bible comes to mentioning angels have wings is the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 has six wings, but seraphim are not angels. Angels are messengers and seraphim are not, are not messengers. The word angel actually means messenger in Greek and, uh, and in Hebrew actually. It's the same uh, translation. They both The words both mean messenger. And what's interesting, if you think about uh, what the Hebrews chapter 13 says about angels, it adds kind of an interesting perspective. <clears throat> Hebrews 13 is talking about how people ought to be welcoming to strangers. And as, if people, you know, if someone knocks on your house in the middle of the night and needs a place to stay, be sure to welcome them. Hebrews 13 says, because by doing so, some people have entertained angels and not even known it. They may have entertained angels and unawares, it says. 
And so that must mean, if you think about it, that these angelic beings must not have wings or halos because if they did, you would hardly be unaware of it. I mean, if a being came to my door with wings and a halo, I could hardly not notice, right? And so, uh, so when it talks about the glory of the Lord shining around about them, that must be special to the occasion, right? So as they're doing some special announcement, the glory of the Lord kind of orbs out from them. But uh, under normal circumstances, you can't even tell an angel. They just look like, look like regular old people. So there doesn't seem to be any specific physical difference between an angel and a human being. And as I said, the word angel just means messengers, and so we can be messengers. So the three things about angels are that they don't have wings or halos, They're, they were messengers, and that uh, they sometimes had this glorious orb or glorious presence and they were glorious to behold so that people were terrified in front of them. But typically that wasn't the case because, I, because what says in Hebrews 13, some people entertain angels and not, don't even know it. So under normal circumstances, the angels must have just looked like people. And so, uh, so we can assume then that typical angels could be mistaken for normal people and that the glory has to be associated with special duties and tasks. So in most regards, angels look kind of like us, that uh, you might have met an angel sometime. You may have uh, been, uh, received a message from an angel. You may, have, uh, you may have been an angel to someone. You know, I can think of many instances if angels are not all that different from us, times when we have had uh, angelic visitations. I remember uh, about 12 years ago when my wife was diagnosed with, uh, with breast cancer, we were really shook, shaken up as a family and uh, you know, it was a real tough thing as you might guess. And there was a woman in our church, I was serving the uh, First Methodist Church in Barberville, Kentucky at the time, and there was a woman named Eloise Lundy in our church. She was such a delightful woman. Just a, we, we just got to be good friends with, with uh, Eloise and her husband Randall, and we'd go out to their, they had a little beautiful little farmhouse uh, that they had reconstructed by hand. And it just was so quaint, very rustic, but very quaint. And we loved going out to their place and fishing with the kids, and we just would have a really great time. But when Kitty was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer, Eloise was like an angel to us. I mean, she would come in and take the girls and spend all day with the girls while we were at uh, doctor's appointments in Lexington. And so Eloise was like an angel to us. And, um, and then just tragically, a few years later, she died right before I moved away from there. And so I, I did her funeral. And it was so sad to do that funeral because she was such an angelic woman. And uh, so, but I just want to give this moment to think about Eloise and to express my appreciation to her and to just maybe suggest that you all who are listening might be called to be an angel to someone you know. There may be someone in your life that really needs an angelic presence. And so, so let me just conclude with three lessons. The first lesson, encouragement, exhortation, is to be curious. Like a teenage shepherd, someone willing to explore God's world and to try new ways of being God's servant. Be humble, like a king without a castle, like a child born in a manger. Uh, the king whose service is characterized by self-giving love rather than by violence and oppression and injustice. And the third thing is to be helpful, to be an angelic messenger of God's goodwill and God's peace to others. So that's my little Christmas message, and I hope you all continue to have a 
wonderful Christmas season. Actually, this uh, podcast should be published on January 6th, which will be Epiphany, the day of Epiphany, the day that we recognize the coming of the wise men to the shepherd, to the, uh, the home of Jesus in Bethlehem. So I want to wish you uh, the happiest of this end of the Christmas season and, the, and a wonderful new year as you get into that venture. So God bless. Thank you.